From The Advocate magazine, in partnership with GLAAD, this is LGBTQ&A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I am definitely not one of those people that claims to know or love certain singers or actors before they're famous. I tend to only quote-unquote discover somebody when they have a number one song or are nominated for a Grammy, and so I'm not the most with-it person when it comes to that. And yet, somehow the exception of that is Brandi Carlisle. I discovered Brandy years ago, like so many of you, through the song The Story. I climbed across the mountain tops, swam all across the ocean blue. I crossed over land and I broke And from there, I found Cannonball, then Shadow on the Wall. And since then, her career has taken this meteoric rise, culminating with the release of By the Way, I Forgive You. When it comes to that album, I think it is appropriate to use the word masterpiece. And so I'm extremely thrilled to say that Brandy is here today to talk about her music, as well as about being a mother, her evolving relationship to religion, and her brand new book, it's out now and called Broken Horses. So without further ado, here's Brandy. So going back a bit, I think it's so funny that in 2017, the New York Times wrote about you and they called you a critically acclaimed but relatively unknown singer-songwriter. And very quickly, that statement about being unknown, it's not true anymore. Yeah, I remember seeing that article. Yeah, it's you're right. It's not true in, in more ways than one. What did you think when you read that? I agreed. And, and, and it's like, you know, I'm from Seattle it's kind of a compliment to a girl from Seattle to be critically acclaimed, but relatively unknown. You know, you kind of want to be that thing. And I was proud of it. And so like just a year later, you were suddenly the most nominated female at the Grammys. You're nominated for Record of the Year, Song of the Year, Album of the Year. Was that the moment that that changed for you? I think so. It sure did seem to be. I mean, I knew it was such a game changer in my life. It's actually never been the same since. And the performance itself, you know, that was a game changer too, because I finally got the chance to do what I'd always wanted to do, which is sing a big old monster undeniable vocal in front of the the culture at large. So yes to that monster vocal. And yet you also write in the book that you were going to like cut that section of the song, which I found so surprising. Yeah, for like the whole time I was going to cut that thing out because I never got it really right. You know, in the studio, I did it like the first time and then I never could do it again. And I, that always concerned me. I mean, I remember that from, from the story. I did that in the story too. I did a vocal thing and then it never happened again. I was like, how am I going to take this out into the world on the road and get this right every night? And then I would do the joke, you know, I had been doing the joke on the road for a year at that point when, when I got nominated for all those Grammys. And I maybe got that ending acceptable, like one out of 10 times. So that is one of your biggest songs. Like, are you worried every time you get to that part when you sing it? Not anymore, but I totally used to be. It would just fall apart half the time. And I kind of even now like have two versions of it. Like I have an acoustic version where I don't do it because it's really dramatic. But yeah, full band, it crosses my mind that I might roll down the hill. But I don't ever since the Grammys because I really trained to get that note out. And I actually didn't nail it at the Grammy. I didn't get it perfect at the Grammys. But I did decide that I didn't care right before I did it. And I think that's kind of what resonated with people. You know, we speak about orientation all the times in terms of sexual orientation, but reading your book, the way you describe your need to be with and around other people, that to me sounds like an orientation. 
And you even write that you can never spend one day alone then or now. Yeah. You know, for me, like being alone is my favorite thing in the world. But I just wonder, like, has that has that always been how you've been? Yeah. I can't be alone. I don't like to be alone. In fact, every experience feels empty, like a tree falling in the forest if I don't have someone else to be with. Case in point, like I woke up all bummed out this morning because I've got to go to Nashville alone and I asked if I could stay with Cheryl Crow just so I could like, can I stay with you? Because <laughs> I don't want to be alone. I want to stay with you. And she's like, yeah, come on. You know, you could stay with me. And the twins won't share a hotel room with me anymore. So yeah, I always try to stay with friends when I go places. But most of the time I, I always tour with my, with my wife and kids. Just food doesn't taste good alone. Movies aren't funny. Jokes aren't funny. Music isn't great. Nothing is great for me alone. I know that's not true for other people. And I feel like kind of like a half person because I'm that way. Like they say you're not really fully evolved until you can experience alone time. And I'm like, shit, <laughs> I'm so unevolved. I mean, I think there was like a not generous reading of it being like, have you tried therapy, Brandy? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like go to a cabin, be alone, please. <laughs> but like reading the book, it wasn't like, oh, this is not like emotional trauma Brandy's covering up. It was like, this is just like genetically like how she is hardwired. Yep. I am hardwired to be in a cult. I mean, you say that, but like as one example, it shows up in your parenting. You've formed this unit with your two bandmates, Tim and Phil, their kids, your kids, your wife, and like super gay, your ex-girlfriend also lives with you. She lives with me. She's downstairs right now. So all of you living together and having this like community, it seems like that was not a choice that you sat down and made together. It just sort of happened. It happened, but with intention. It's, it's like... You know, my dad pointed out to me during the early part of me writing the book that he saw me. My dad's a very quiet man. He doesn't usually offer up a lot of anecdotal wisdom. But when I attempted to be baptized as a teenager, he saw me recover from that by pulling people into my life, by pulling together allies, a family, supporters, other people who'd been rejected, other misfits, just creating stability in a way in numbers. I think that's what I've done. That's what my career is, is me recovering from and reacting to rejection by pulling congregants, allies, people together to not be alone. I don't even like that stages are elevated above the audience. Yeah, I'm that codependent. I, I want to feel really with people in ways that are profound, and I'm still taking that apart and unpacking that. I mean, as your fame grows... I would be nervous that if there was on a stage, that there'd be like safety issues with, with that access to your body. I know. It's like the biggest fight that I ever have is like all my tour managers, everybody that works for me, they know like, it's like the worst part of any day is when they have to come on my bus and tell me there's a barricade because I'll be like, no, did you talk to the venue? And we, you got to remove it because it's like that puts three and a half feet from me in the front row. And that's miserable, you know, because I'm a club kid. I come from bars. I want people's beers. I want to be watching out to not kick people's beers. Like I want that kind of closeness. I know there's safety issues and things have happened, but I like to be close to people. Oh, because your desire to be with people, it's close family, but it's also strangers. It's everything. Yeah, I want to be understood. I want to be in community. I want to overcome partition. I don't want to create it. Going off of community, you know, you came out at 15 or 16 not knowing any other gay people. And you also didn't have, you didn't have like a gaggle of lesbians to hang out with. You know, you eventually had girlfriends, but like, were you part of a queer community? No, I mean, when I came out of the closet, like you said, I had never met a gay person. I didn't have anything close to a girlfriend. 
But it strikes me as I mine those memories and those years how important representation is and was. And we always say representation's important, representation's important. But like, if you go back to those, specifically those two chapters around my adolescence and coming out of the closet and you remove Elton John and the Indigo Girls, and if you remove the Philadelphia film and soundtrack, if you remove pop culture and representation and influence from my adolescence, you have a person that wouldn't have known who she was. I mean, you also didn't have like a dinner party with your family and being like, I have an announcement, guys, like sit down. Yeah. And I kind of have to wonder if that is something that like pop culture has like put inside queer brains to be like, I need to have the announcement dinner. It is. It is. And it can be really disappointing. It's it's more like a series of little events that happen and some are disappointing and some are heartening and you take them with you throughout your life. You wake up every day and come out of the closet. You make a decision every day to live out loud. And it's not always a good day. You know, you also wrote about your gender growing up, about cutting your hair short, being uncomfortable in traditional women's bathing suits. And you were also in a band with all guys. And you said that you felt and they felt that you were just one of the guys. Yeah. So assessing that now, was that more about, you know, not fitting into society's expectations of a woman? Or was it deeper than that? I don't know. I don't want to, I want to be sensitive about fluidity and gender in general, because I did want that at that time. And then I didn't want it later. And then I did want it again another time. And so there's been this kind of transitions, transitions always happening in my life. And they're usually a response to something in my environment, a girlfriend I have, or something I'm interested in any given time, you know. I do remember at the time, coming out of the closet, not seeing gay people on TV, not seeing gay people in movies or photographs or magazines, and not being able to find a way to reconcile how natural it is for people of the same sex to physically relate to one another, that I couldn't picture being close to women, kissing women, holding hands with women, and also being a woman. I think I needed to see myself as not one to accept it. That's how I felt at the time, and I leaned into it. I like that I've leaned into gender nonconformity so many times in my life, and that I still do. As you are now a parent raising two girls in this world, like is that something you think about a lot? Well, they make me think about it because they're so different than I was, especially my oldest. She is so innately feminine. And I don't want to put anything on her, but she just also seems straight. You know, it's like my youngest, she just like hates boys, doesn't want to talk about boys. Everything's about girls. But my but my oldest, she wants to only play with girls, but she frequently talks about marrying guys. It's always skill related, like based on their skills. This guy, Cody Peterson, he like, you know, wrestles crocodiles and catches snakes and, you know, holds bugs and stuff. And she, she loves this guy and she watches his show and she's like, mama, I mean... If I'm going to marry a guy, Coyote Peterson kind of seems like he's got enough skills, you know, like he seems like he's got the right skills around animal management and, you know, understanding of wilderness. And I mean, I know you, you're you're never going to marry a guy because you're married to mommy, but if you were, surely he would be the one, you know, or watch that show alone, you know, where they go out to like the wilderness and she's just always like husband hunting. How old is she? She's seven. But you live like in like the forest. Like she knows about survival and she like needs that. Yeah. Well, her mommy and her mama, like we have the skills, you know, like we ride four wheelers, you know, we drive a 36 foot fishing boat. We split wood. Like we have skills. She doesn't need Coyote Peterson, but she is straight. (laughs) 
We mentioned the song, The Joke, and there's a lyric in there that I didn't know if it was about your daughter. You get discouraged, don't you, girl? It's your brother's world for a while longer. In 2016, after that election, I saw so many little girls with their signs and their T-shirts and all of their their hopefulness in that morning, you know, when it all kind of came crashing down in the way that it did, and it was all so ugly. I was addressing young girls at large during that time. You know, you are someone who's religious. Have you and your wife always agreed on how to raise your children in terms of religion? I live in a really sort of customized and intimate space within my faith that is based on my own understanding and writers and leaders and, and teachers that I'm I'm fond of. But my wife is different and she doesn't have that perspective. But she's really interested in the fact that I do, and she is proud of me. And as a whole, we really click around our kind of overall philosophy. It doesn't always have to veer into into theology. My oldest daughter, Evangeline, she is called, I think, in the direction that I'm called in spiritually. And she responds to it, and she has a lot of questions, and we have a lot of honest conversations. But my wife, she doesn't really know how to talk about it or just not even sure she wants to. So I get a lot of, Brandy, get in here. Evangeline's talking about Jesus. <laughs> so it's like you're presenting Jesus and religion to them as, a, as an option that they have, one of many. Yeah, Absolutely. And with a, you know, agnostic veering into atheist mummy and a Jesus freak mama with a really complicated perspective on faith and the wreckage that it's left. Well, I think it is so interesting that you still do have a relationship with your faith, with Jesus, because as you alluded to earlier, you were denied being baptized. And the story is a bit traumatic where your family was there to watch you. It was like the day of, and they said, no, this is not happening. Yeah. And I think that that would drive most people away from faith forever. Mm -hmm. I think this is a universal concept that in deep moments of pain, rejection, when the smoke clears, questions arise as a result of the doubt. And the questions have always pushed me closer to a creator. I feel uniquely privileged in that way because people that are just born fitting the mold of the Judeo-Christian Western faith specimen, (laughs) the person that fits the mold, the hashtag blessed human, they don't get those deep moments of darkness and rejection where they have to ask, the questions. And in asking the questions, I feel that I'm getting the answers. And that pushes me closer in my faith, I think, than it would if I hadn't experienced those dark times. I mean, I said that it surprised me that it did not push you away. I guess that's like the question I have. Like, does it surprise you looking back? Or does this like, does it all make sense that it did not push you away? Well, there's this mystical thread that is tied through my life and my whole faith. And that is that everything hard that happens to me pushes me into music. And that's where God is in, lives inside of for me. And so that day pushed me into Hallelujah, pushed me into Leonard Cohen and, and Jeff Buckley. And Hallelujah taught me that it's a cold and a broken Hallelujah. It's not a hashtag blessed, perfect white suburban Hallelujah. I knew I had to leave organized religion and that I had to leave my template and go into something scary, dark and beautiful. And that's when that happened. That was that pivotal moment. And yet you also write that people... Can you use this to discredit you, your relationship with Jesus? Do you have an example of like what you mean by that? 
It's more than understandable. It might even be justified and healthy to feel triggered by the concept of organized religion or even the buzzwords around it. I recoil at the buzzwords, words like sin or forgiveness, that organized religion has used to condemn and exclude and deprive LGBTQIA people of a comfortable life. And so if someone reads that I feel this way, that I do believe in God, that I call God Jesus and that, that that's my version of the truth, that they might bristle and they might get upset, just like I have and do to this day when I encounter a person like that, because I'm waiting for the other shoe to fall. I'm waiting for the rejection. Oh, because you've also already experienced that in your life. Yes. I think the data shows that the majority of LGBTQ people are people of faith. Does it really? Yeah. That's a kind of something I've I noticed that, but I wondered if there was data to support it. Because like everyone that I've talked to since I wrote the book wants to go into their own faith rejection story. And I realize it's such a concept that needs to be talked about more. Yeah. Well, I think that unfortunately we live in like this crazy polarized time and each side is picked and choose like issues. Like we've got abortion, you don't. And then somehow like the left has picked all of religion. And so like there's this weird thing of thinking like you cannot be like a progressive liberal and like believe in Jesus. And like, as we know, that's not true. Yeah. And I had a second calling and was drawn into studies and felt like there's a fringe space. There's this like, there's a lane. And I think I'm definitely in it spiritually. What was that moment for you that you found it again? I was making the album Give Up the Ghost. And I had a dream that I interacted with my grandfather who, I was pretty young when he died. He had ALS. And I was going through a really hard time. And I was struggling with sleep aids and steroids. And I was in love. I was in a relationship. I was in up two relationships. And I was kind of flailing in my career and struggling with my self-esteem. And I had a dream that I interacted with my grandfather. And it was just like one of those dreams, like, you know, you, maybe you have like two or three of them in your life. I'm like, that was more than a dream. And I woke up and it was a Sunday morning in the dream. My grandfather, who I don't really remember super vividly, but I remember him having blonde hair in this dream. He had brown hair. He looked actually quite like you. So handsome. And he was singing with me. And I woke up thinking, that was weird to have a dream about him with brown hair. And I picked up my phone and my mother had texted me a photograph of her dad before I was born with a big, beautiful head of brown hair, not blonde. And I thought, this is just too weird. And it was like Sunday morning and I, and I got up and I went to church and had the same thing, the cold sweats and the shakes. And I was just afraid that I was going to hear a sermon about condemnation or that I was going to have to come out of the closet that day, you know, like you do every fucking day. But I didn't. And I, I picked up some books and I started a study and it was just based on a dream that something from the other side had reached out to me and pulled me back over. That story is so interesting to me because it, it's like witchy, for like lack of better word. And I only use that word because crystals and tarot and astrology and everything is so trendy nowadays. Right. And I feel like, or I don't feel like, I wonder, I have this question, like, do, does everybody actually believe the exact same thing? We just have like different vocabulary for it? Potentially. Absolutely potentially. I mean... All I can say is that we're not algae. I'll agree with that. And that I'm quite partial to the Jesus story, but I can't say much more than that, you know? Well, tell me this. I think sometimes that, I think the country music is like the one genre where everybody can, they can be fans of people. Like, I love Dolly Parton. I love Carrie Underwood. I love Brandi Carlisle, but I hate country. 
And you're like, but you just named country musicians. And I kind of have to wonder, again, in our, our like polarized country, if somehow since like Nashville and the country music has this like Southern tinge to it, mm-hmm. do we just assume all of it is conservatives who voted for the like other guy? Such a good question and something I think about and talk about all the time with my friends about why the word country, why C words, why the word Christian, why the word country uh, in general. What do those words mean to us? What do they trigger? What do they make us feel when we think of them? Country is not entirely different than the word Christian to people like me and you. We bristle. We're ready. And I don't know that I necessarily need either word for that reason. I mean, I also don't know that I would consider your music to be country. Like, do you have a genre name for it? Well, I grew up on country music, and oh my God, the 90s country divas. Oh, talking about Reba, talking about Tanya. They were huge pillars like in my life and so important. And I, I love country music, and I will always love country music, and I'll always love church. But there comes a time, I think, where you need to address what it is that you love about it. And the industry itself, if I could be so bold as to say, isn't doing the best job of unpolarizing itself. And that maybe there is a profit to be made from defining those political lines. But I live a little bit on an island. You know, I live out in Seattle and I see these things happen and I wonder about their trajectory or why they're going down. And I think to myself more and more, I feel like an Americana artist. Is there discussions happening behind the scenes of, hey, we need to make it known that we are not just for one political party? Yeah, my friends, we talk about it all the time. We talk about, man, how can I not be seen as this if I identify with this? And it's a really complicated and ever-changing conversation that's in, in flux, you know? I just think that we need to know and people need to know, we need people to know where we stand in terms of fairness and kindness, in terms of inclusion and anti-racism. And it's no longer okay to just not know that there are people of color trying to make it in country music. We know now, now we platform, now we do the work and the inclusion has to be active. This is where meritocracy is a complete injustice because the merits can't be earned when the opportunities aren't given. We have to make a conscious effort to give these opportunities and to create these spaces for inclusion. I'm really excited and heartened to see it happening and so many of my friends becoming really conscious of it, me becoming conscious of it. It's going to be an exciting couple of years for that reason. All these perceptions and stereotypes are just built on generalizations, what it means to be country. And I think one funny example is that you grew up in the Northwest and you have a Southern accent. I grew up in the South and I do not. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's crazy, like what proximity does. I mean, Elton John sings with a Southern accent and his first three albums, you know, it's like the further away you are from something you admire, the more you try to mimic it. Oh, so there's like a performative nature to that in Washington where you were. Yeah, it's just like, it's what you love. It's it's culturally what you embrace. I got this accent when I was like eight at the Northwest Grand Ole Opry covering Tanny Tucker songs. And then I just took it to school and now it's just my life. And I'm not the only one. Do you know who Laurie McKenna is? Laurie McKenna is like an incredible writer in Nashville. And we wrote Crowded Table together, me and her and Natalie Hemby. And she's a New Englander. She's from Boston. And and she has a Southern accent too. And we always laugh about what posers we are, but we can't help it. You know, it's, it's affection. You get it back when you drink a little bit. 
Oh, alcohol for sure. Yeah. So like every night. No, sorry. <laughs> Every night past like eight o'clock, you're like a full on cowboy. For sure. But my sister actually is two years older than me and she has one. So I think it's like something, if I was going to like psychoanalyze myself, I think it was like something about like growing up gay in the South. And I was like, I can do that, but I can't also have a Southern accent. Yeah. We can't burden you with both things. Right. This is about you though. So um, more questions. You always had this big goal of winning the best Americana album at the Grammys. And you did that. As you said, you're not even yet 40. What is the new goal? Like, what, what are you thinking about when you, like, think about the future? I think about my kids a lot. I would like to see them happy and successful by their own bar. And I want them to be proud of me, and I want them to want to hang out with me. That's the big thing. When I see, like, other adults with kids, and the kids are, like, near adults, and they want to hang out with their parents, I'm, like, pulling at their sleeve going, tell me your secret. Like, what did you do to make these kids want to hang out with you? Because... You know, I, I can't do the aloneness thing. And I just love being with my family. I'm going to do cool things in my life. I'm going to continue to do cool things in my career. This book is a bigger goal to me than, than winning the Americana album Grammy was. Why is that? Because it's kind of a long answer to a last question. But I think that like in our industry, an effort is justifiably made all the time to sell a person as moderately infallible or at least special or set apart in some way. So we glamorize. And I think that because of my life's emergences and because that's always been a pattern for me, and because I probably have a pretty wicked case of an imposter syndrome, I'm always going to be feeling the need to tell the truth, that there's a thread that connects us all, that the platform is make-believe, that we give the clothes back at the end of the day. I, I think I always feel like if I write this song and I tell the truth, if I if I show up here and, and I decide to be myself and people still accept me, then I guess I do belong here. I think the book is that for me. It's me going, okay, here's the truth. Here's where I come from. Here's who I am. I still walk into stores and take something to the cash register without asking how much it is, because I know if somebody, if I ask how much it is, somebody's going to know I'm poor. I still live these things. You know, I still dream that I'm back in school and I can't catch up and I can't graduate. If I just write it all down in one place and I hand it to you, you know me. If you still accept me, then I, I belong here. Amazing. Thank you for talking today. This has been fantastic. It's been fantastic for me, too. Let's not let it be the last one. And that is Brandy Carlisle. The album that I mentioned at the top is called By the Way I Forgive You. And her new book is called Broken Horses. Broken Horses is out now. And then if you have not yet subscribed to the podcast, please do that. Doing things like subscribing and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts really do make a huge difference in letting new people find our show. So if you've not yet done that, please take like four seconds. It can be super quick. And if you have, thank you. It really does mean the world to us. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with Glad. I'm Jeffrey Masters, known on Twitter as at JeffMasters1. I'll see you next week.